Welcome to the latest Energy Transition podcast. My name is Ronan Kavner, Deputy Editor of EI New Energy. I'm here today with Editorial Director Peter Kemp to discuss some of our observations from IP Week in London, one of the oil and gas industry's biggest annual gatherings. Peter, the energy transition figured very prominently in the IP Week conference, but it's not really surprising, is it, given the mounting pressure on the industry? Absolutely not. Um, it was very clear from the get-go, which was uh, from Fatih Birol, who started the conference, the executive director of the International Energy Agency, who said that no oil and gas company anywhere will be unaffected by the energy transition and that every part of the industry, and that includes the national oil companies of the big producers in the Middle East, needs to consider how to respond. And from the private sector, from the, the majors, there were speakers from BP, Shell, Equinor, Total, all of whom were very keen to step up and say uh, what they are doing. And is what they're doing sufficient to the challenge or I mean, do they need to do more? Well, this is the big uh, unanswerable question at this moment. Um, for example, Total, um, which has made uh, a lot of noise and uh, made several acquisitions uh, in recent months, as have many of the other majors, said very clearly that by 2025, five years from now, 30% of their investment um, will be in low carbon energy. Uh, they, along with everybody else, um, is applying technology, money and thinking to reducing the carbon intensity of the business, particularly um, from the upstream, but all the way down through the value chain uh, to the consumer-facing end of the business. And they're doing what they can to reduce the emissions intensity. But for that to be a concrete goal that everybody can sign up to, uh, we need regulation. Uh, in effect, uh, there's an awful lot going on in the lab in terms of developing technologies and possible applications uh, to apply in the real world. But it needs government to erect the goalposts and show the way and create the market, if you like. And is this, is this proving an impediment? Are politicians willing to kind of take up the gauntlet here? Well, I mean, the industry is under siege uh, from the climate emergency, extreme weather, ESG investment. Uh, their reputation in the public square is at rock bottom. Um, they need high dividends to uh, keep their investors happy. But at the same time, they, they're being called upon to demonstrate uh, a public good. Now, for that, um, they really need government to step in and help. But as we know, um, politics is a huge impediment. Um, as one very eloquent speaker pointed out, politicians survive on what's popular, not necessarily uh, what's most positive for the energy future. Now, we have COP26 coming up later this year, and there was a lot of uh, steering the debate to that milestone in Glasgow saying, look, COP25 was a bit of a mess. Uh, it was strong on uh, goal stating. Now we need a concrete roadmap uh, with clear signposts to get us to the destination. And I mean, getting there will involve a big change for the industry, but it's, it's not entirely going to kind of disappear from, from, from view. We're going to have oil and gas around for quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everybody was uh, very keen to talk about what they're doing in the renewables space. Everybody was um, very keen to talk about what they're doing to uh, set out a strategy to achieve net zero, whether that be in the 2020s, 2030s, or by 2050. And there are some very 
impressive concrete examples of companies that have lowered the uh, kilos of carbon emitted per barrel of oil or barrel of oil equivalent produced. Equinor in Norway with its Norwegian sea operations being a prime example of that. And there's some very interesting things going on uh, on, on the UK North Sea side as well with CCS. Uh, but that's still in a sort of early infant stage. And people looking at the longer term agenda are saying, look, we need we need a to-do list. First of all, we've got to decarbonize power generation. Then we can't decarbonize the transport fleet without clean electricity. Then we need to address home heating. We need to switch to green or blue hydrogen. We need to up our game in recycling, reusing plastics and bio-waste, et cetera, et cetera. The, the laundry list is endless. But the clear message from, for example, the CEO of VTOL, which is uh, an oil trading company, but which is now active right across the energy chain, uh, the chief executive said, we're still very short of regulation and policy in a joined up way. Uh, it's a lot of work and governments have to get moving on that. That's the message. Very interesting. And it was also kind of um, one, thing, one thing that struck out for me was how Shell, Equinor, Total, we're all still talking, however, about you know the need to focus on their core traditional businesses, providing the energy that people will need while embracing the energy transition. Um, I mean, this has been something that they've talked about quite a bit, and you know, in terms of needing profits to kind of fund the diversification as well. Absolutely. Now, the big question is that in that is if they do want to make this transition, will they still be producing hydrocarbons in decades to come? Well, I think the answer to that has been kind of a quite equivocal yes. I mean, French major Total's um, president of exploration production, Arnaud Brouillac, said that even in a rapid transition, oil and gas would still account for 50% of global energy demand in 2040. And, you know, with the natural decline in fields, they're going to still need to invest in barrels. I mean, some 70 million barrels a day of production will also need to be replaced, even if demand r- remains flat. And it's the carbon dioxide from the, these barrels that, you know, are going to be crucial to the success or failure of um, the Paris Agreement. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you, Ronan, is there anything in particular that industry can do to accelerate or overcome, accelerate the, ch- the transition and overcome this problem? Absolutely. I mean, while, while investments in renewables, kind of solar, wind, um, also downstream and EVs, it's it, it very good for diversification. I think if the industry is going to solve the core problem of hydro of emissions from its, its 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 barrels, it's going to need to focus on technologies like CCS and hydro and hydrogen. I mean, as Fatty Birol said, you know, oil and gas companies have a crucial role to play here, and he even suggested without that that without their know how and resources, some technologies like CCS and hydrogen, you know, may not even reach maturity. Well, there's a, the elephant in the room for many was uh, carbon capture, reuse, and storage. It's struggled to get going, hasn't it? Now, is there any chance that the we can get beyond these pilot projects, however impressive, however impressive they are, and get large scale application? Well, you know, CCS has had many false starts in the past. Um, now we're kind of seeing some movement again, some progress. I mean, in Norway, we've got the Europe's first industrial CCS facility, which is a great example of companies working together. We've got Equinor and Total in that. And similarly, in, in, in Teesside in the UK, I mean, just today, we saw BP, Equinor, Shell and Total coming together in what will be the big, biggest cluster to go ahead so far with CCS and constant CO2 production. 
But this needs to be scaled up massively. I mean, something like 2,000 CCS plants would be needed by 2050 at an industrial scale to, to cope with the emissions that we're talking about. And indeed, and the industry may have to work hard to convince the sceptics on that one, no? Yeah, well, not, not everyone believes that CCS is a silver bullet. I think environmental campaigners argue it isn't green because it's just a way for the fossil fuel industry to carry on and prevents the world from moving to truly sustainable solutions that where they don't produce the carbon in the first place. Well, hydrogen is another one of these technologies which has been around forever. Uh, but again, there's trouble delivering on the promise, isn't there? Again, yeah, it's a question of scaling up from the pilot projects, the laboratory projects to the commercial scale ones. I mean, but, you know, there is there is a lot for the industry to pursue here. I mean, I, I was at a session where John MacArthur, VP Group Carbon at Shell, pointed out the versatility of hydrogen. I mean, you can use it to complement renewables. It can act as storage. You can transport it from areas of abundance like the Middle East, where there's lots of solar, to, to other markets. So it has an opportunity to, to, to join up the energy transition. And we've seen companies I mean, working together here as well, which is a, a good model for them to continue. We've had Total and Shell in Germany building hydrogen fueling stations. Also, the Netherlands is looking at hydrogen, Australia, the European Union as well, and China um, is exploring hydrogen economy. And of course, um, Tokyo famously, if the Olympics go ahead, will be using hydrogen to power it. So I think there's a lot happening here. Indeed. Now, now, what about the nature-based solutions that companies are talking about? Yes. Well, we've seen more and more companies talking about using nature-based solutions, shorthand for tree planting, to kind of offset their emissions. Now, now this is potentially problematic. Um, the problem is with these carbon sinks is that environmental campaigners say that these will be needed to soak up the emissions if we go over our Paris goals. They also kind of question whether it's, it's, it's a real solution to, 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 to dealing with the world's emissions when you're talking about having to plant an area of trees that could be the size of Australia. So how, is, how ultimately, how effective is this solution going to be? Um, I think ultimately the oil, the oil industry may need to look at this very carefully and proceed with great caution here. I think that there's echoes. Um, echoes of the problems that were happened with biofuels here, particularly in the around the the use of land, I think companies will want to avoid potential conflicts with other land users, like poor farmers in the developing world. Now, let's not forget that the rising population will need to be fed as well as have energy. So, where will these trees be planted? And um, well, this is a good question too. I think a lot of the projects that will go ahead will be in the developing world, under what's known as the Red Plus. Um, credits, which are part of the Paris Agreement. And this brings us back again to how the, the, the next meeting, COP26 in Paris or in Glasgow, will be extremely crucial. Well, there's certainly plenty for us to, to watch here. How much will the industry embrace change? Where will it target investment? And crucially, will it be enough to reassure investors and deflect the critics? Well, thank you, Ronan, for sharing some of your thoughts. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this Energy Transition podcast. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for listening to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. Please check back with us soon for our latest content, which you can find at energyintel.com.